Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Vera Keller to tell us all about her book titled The Interlopers, Early Stewart Projects and the Undisciplining of Knowledge, just out in April 2023 from Johns Hopkins Press. This is a really interesting account of quite an important period in imperial history, in scientific innovation, in business history and development. Um, And Vera very successfully brings all these things together and also asks a bunch of important sort of, in some ways, meta questions about, well, what is knowledge and what was being contested as knowledge? Um, What was discipline? Why did that matter? How were all of these things unfolding? And what can we learn and understand from them looking at them now? Um, So Vera, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. Thanks so much, Miranda. Thanks for having me. And thank you for that introduction. That was brilliant and probably better put than I could have put it myself. (laughs) Well, the tables are very much turning because that exhausts my expertise, given that you're the one who's actually written the book. Um, But before we dive into all of its wonderful insights, could you maybe introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this? Sure. I'm a professor of history at the University of Oregon, and for my sins, are also currently department head. And I'm an early modern historian of science or of knowledge, as some of my colleagues in the history of science are currently reframing ourselves. And this book actually started quite some time ago, as books tend to do. It started actually over 20 years ago. It started as my undergraduate thesis. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on perpetual motion machines. Uh, There's a long backstory I won't go into on how I arrived at that, but one of the perpetual motion machines I wrote about was of this uh, particular inventor. And as I quickly came to discover, also an artist and a natural philosopher and all around interesting thinker named Cornelis Drebbel. I saw that Drebbel was really all over the map when it came to early modern sources. There was poetry about him. There were plays that made reference to him. There were paintings of his devices. And I saw also that he wasn't very central in a lot of the large-scale stories about uh, science of the period and other major changes of the period. So I decided to write my PhD thesis about him, which grew and grew and grew. It was an incredibly long PhD thesis. And I finished that up in 2008. Um, And um, one of the issues that I had when I was working on my PhD thesis was that uh, there were questions that I could not answer. So one of the questions that I could not answer was how could it be that someone like Drebbel, who seemed to be very unbounded in his behavior, who had a lot of statements about his political philosophy, his social views that seemed to be quite anarchist, how was it that he could not just uh, survive, but in fact appear to flourish in um, the early Stuart court, given that the early Stuart court seem to have this reputation of being very hierarchical, of being a place where the heads of state really wanted to kind of crack down on people, for example, prying into the secrets of empire, speaking politically in any way. How could there be someone who could present their inventions to the king and when they're doing so, offer the king advice, political advice, which is one of the things that this... Uh, seemingly unlearned artisan Drebbel did. So I was not able to answer that question in my dissertation. That led me to this larger thinking about the period and wondering about the idea of the hierarchy and the discipline that, according to state-of-the-art accounts, really characterized not only the early Stuart court, but 
basically science, uh, early modern science and the modern condition we live in. And so it led me to kind of question some of these groundwork assumptions about hierarchy and discipline and to think about what was the culture of knowledge at play in which people like King James and Prince Charles valued someone who could overturn boundaries and who could kind of overthrow inherited structures. And that's how I got to interlopers. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I think that's quite often where very good book ideas come from is kind of, hang on, I've noticed this. And I've noticed this, and they seem to be kind of contradictory. I'm going to go poke at that and see what happens. Um, And you've done that and figured out a whole bunch of things. So can we start, I suppose, with the title and very much, I think, a key term in it to both understand the book and kind of what, in some senses, the answer to this question you've raised is, what do you mean by interloping? And why do you look at it through the practices of projecting? Mm. So two terms really to define there, projecting and interloping, and um, then the question of why I didn't call the book The Projectors, why I aimed for the interlopers instead. So both projects and interlopers are relatively new terms in the early modern period. Projects is a little bit older, although the term projector, which is a person who designs a project, uh, was new around 1600, as was the term interloper, which was a borrowing from Dutch into English and literally means someone who is walking between two things. So the concept of the project is uh, something that is thrown forward into the future. It's on an analogy with an engineering sketch uh, where you project kind of a defensive bulwark outwards into space and that started to become a plan for the future in the 16th century and projecting as a practice really picks up um, very quickly in pace under the early stewards now projects as a practice um, had a very very bad reputation at the time as did the character of the projector and as the character of the projector still does in historiography today. So going back to Drebbel, which uh, first led me to this whole project, <laughs> I use the word project, in square in, in scare quotes, it's hard for us to even think about our intellectual work these days without using that term. You'll see references to Drebbel as a projector in uh, some historiography, and that's often a term that is used to remove that character from a place of position, uh, of influence, of agency in large-scale narrators, because projectors, and um, this is a stereotype that's based in some period the- theatrical, you know, representations of projectors, are often assumed to be fly-by-night, kind of crack-brained, out there characters who come into a, a situation, try to take advantage and then leave before anyone can tell that what they had to do was uh, corrupt or um, taking advantage of the people in an area. Uh, What I found was that uh, in his lifetime, Drebbel was never called a projector, uh, except in one very uh, tongue-in-cheek joke that someone once cast, which was actually comparing his projection of light through a magic lantern display um, and calling him a projector in that sense. Um, So he was someone who worked on projects, but he wasn't a projector. And in fact, I discovered that projectors tended to be socially elite figures, very much at the center. And although they often were transnational, international Um, and came to, for example, London from abroad, potentially, they were not necessarily fly-by-night figures. There is one example I give in the book of someone who is really trying to cheat everyone and make off. But most people, even if they're transnational, are there for the long haul. Several of them settle in England um, for generations and even found kind of dynasties of projectors. And that really re-centered the role that projectors played in knowledge, in politics, and in culture for me. And it made me realize that uh, figures like Drebbel worked for projectors. They weren't projectors themselves. Projectors were their social superiors. And in some situations, some projects are fairly uh, importantly coming from 
figures at the very top of the social echelons. Even Prince Charles is someone at the time who is considered to have projects, um, for example. But I didn't want to use the term projectors to talk about this for a couple of reasons. One is precisely because we do have very fixed stereotypes about what a projector is, and it's a very loaded term. And so I wanted to get away from that and allow us to reconsider what a projector was in the period. And the other was, uh, the other reason was that um, I wanted to also open it up a bit from what were very strictly considered projects in the period and projectors in the period to kind of more um, slightly wider, although still closely related intellectual practices that you see in projecting, but that have a uh, bigger influence in the period. Practices of moving from one area to another, both in terms of forms of knowledge, in terms of social uh, practices and behaviors and um, in terms of parts of the world. And so for that, I use the term interloper, which uh, fittingly is a Dutch term in English. And so it already has that transnational uh, perspective to it. Um, but in addition to that opening up of the concept of movement between practices that interlopers allows in a way that projects doesn't necessarily imply for us today, there is one other really important thing for me that interlopers does is that the term interloper um, implies engaging illicitly in a trade. So in the 17th century, the term interloper had a couple of meanings. One was a spy, someone who could interlope everywhere and find out information from everyone and bring it back to a patron. And the other was someone who is engaging illicitly in a trade which by rights belongs to somebody else. And I really wanted to forefront that idea because according to their own rhetoric of the time, when projectors projected their schemes out into the world, they depicted the world as though it was a kind of a blank sheet of paper, much like the kind of visual analogy that lies behind uh, the sketch of a, an architectural project. They have these visions that they sketch and um, things are just ready for them to um, use in that vision. There's space in which to project and they aren't necessarily taking that over from somebody else. Interlopers already inherently suggests that indeed, when you interlope, you're going into someone else's space. There is no empty space in the world. And so when you're taking over a social position, when you're taking over a form of knowledge, when you're invading a territory, when you are presuming a, um, um, a craft, um, intruding yourself upon a craft, you are doing harm. You're taking something that traditionally had belonged to someone else and the people do not like to have it taken from them. So it was important for me to use a term that really centered that, especially because one of the things I was interact, uh, reacting to overall in my arguments was against some metaphors about um, intellectual commerce that we often use today that really premises the exchange of knowledge upon a normative view of commerce as though commerce was always mutually beneficial and above board and honest and therefore offers a model for intellectual exchange. And I wanted to show how um, not only did knowledge and commerce interact in and entangle in really real and inseparable ways in the period, but the forms of interaction were not these uh, normative practices that very often it was literally interloping. It was literally piracy. It was literally um, theft or forms of corruption. And um, you could have uh, ways that that culture of um, kind of taking over someone's knowledge, taking over someone's resources would introduce also intellectual habits that need to be explained through a real hard look at what the commercial practices of the period were, which uh, throughout the history of business is always going to include some pretty shady business as well. So that has a ton of amazing myth busting in it, right? You've just 
unpacked a whole bunch of things and forced us to kind of rethink and go, hmm, okay, well, hang on. Yeah, if we do use that term, that does give us some implications. Whereas over here, we've got different connotations. So I sort of want to continue that idea of myth busting and pick up on something you've already mentioned a little bit about kind of who gets called a projector and our assumptions of who might get that term now is not quite actually tracking with who was called that at the time. Um, And so I'd love to ask you to give us a brief summary of one of your very helpfully titled chapters, the cast of characters chapter. Um, What sorts of people would be involved in a project, whether or not they'd actually be called a projector? Um, And kind of how does this reality, when you investigated the sources, stack up against what we might have assumed? It's a great question. And um, not every project is going to have a huge cast of characters. Some very large undertakers do, undertakings do. And I just had a slip of the tongue there because undertaker is another period term for a projector that helpfully survives today in our term entrepreneur, which is one way to think about who a projector was. Um, so not every project will have a fully fleshed out, very diverse cast of characters. Smaller undertakings might have just a handful of people. But in your largest enterprises, you do need very many different individuals of different social statuses and abilities to make a project, um, get funding, get investors, and get the legal protection it needs in order to go forward. The basis of um, a project in the period, and one of the reasons why another synonym for a projector at the time was a patentee, is really getting a patent. So what you're trying to do is get some special protection via letters patent from the crown for some intervention that you're making. Um, And it could be an intervention of really any kind. People think of projecting as out there mechanical inventions, for example. But there are many different types of projects um, from trades to writing a book uh, might all need a a patent, which at the time um, was also synonymous with a privilege or private law. So you are trying to get a patent from the court, which means that you need some courtly cachet. And so you're going to want to either have a courtier on board your project, or you're going to need to have relationships with somebody who can give you an introduction at court and give you access to the types of people who can win you a patent. So that right away brings uh, social elites into the question, which is not the way that we think of projectors. We think of projectors as being marginally marginal on the bottoms, craftspeople. You're then going to want to have um, some people with financial abilities. You need people to um, work on getting investors. You need also the brains behind the project, someone who has a particular skill at weaving together different phenomena, different insights uh, into a persuasive argument, which is what a project is. It's a persuasive argument that you are presenting in order to win a patent. And so that is a particular skill that takes a certain uh, talent. You're going to need some agents, people who specialize in serving as agents in traveling around and having connections in recruiting talent. Um, So you're going to have to have some agents on board somehow. Then you're going to have to have some practical talent. So you are going to have those craftspeople, those engineers or inventors, um, scholars, even potentially on board your project. And at the kind of bottom of your hierarchy there, you're going to need your labor. And that could be anything from paid labor or ostensibly paid labor. There's numerous examples of projects that go south as they frequently do. And it's the laborers at the bottom who end up going unpaid. Um, It could be impressed or enforced or enslaved labor. So all um, the entire social gamut from enforced uh, and enslaved labor all the way to uh, the highest social elites could be part and often were a part of projects. And I think that answer alone is going to help a lot of listeners understand why this might seem like a book that's purely about the Stuart period, but there's a lot of parallels to things that are happening today that we can very much recognize, um, which makes really the following discussion, I think, even more 
interesting because of course the title of the book the interloper right it's not just kind of what is a project it's well what are they doing and what might they be disrupting so could you take us through some of the sort of concepts or lines that projects and projectors were seen to be crossing um and how people at the time especially reacted to this definitely um so what defined a projector was the fact that um a, they were undertaking something with no assurance of success. That's how Samuel Johnson pithily defined a projector in the mid-18th century or a project in the mid-18th century. And a projector, by definition, had no one trade. They saw kind of everything as uh, theirs for engaging in. So projectors did not just pursue projects in one area. They pursued often very many projects across the course of their careers, and they often developed multi-plank projects that combined many endeavors, often through some ingenious calculation that would show that having some invention in, or intervention in this arena would then have some ripple on effect over there, which could then be shown to have some other effect elsewhere and put it all together. And it would bear incredible profit and often honor for the crown and for the uh, public good. So there's a couple of things going on there. One is um, these political arguments that you see in projects. And that's something I was really surprised by because this is supposed to be, as I mentioned at the outset, a court that has a firm hold on the secrets of empire, does not allow and censors political speech. And yet you see as kind of almost a commonplace in these texts of projects, all these arguments about how it relates to the public good, how um, these are going to benefit the state and also benefit the crown, these interventions. And um, the reason for that is um, a persuasive one. You are going to the crown to get funding, but it's also a legal one. So according to um, what, what's known as um, the Book of Bounty, um, which uh, King James um, published had published in 1610, projects were encouraged um, as long as they did not harm existing interests. So as long as there was no kind of current trade in place that uh, would be harmed by the project. So according to what I just said about projects taking over existing practices, that would seem to mean um, that no project could ever be possible. The solution that projectors found was twofold. One was they developed these ingenious arguments for how these projects would benefit everyone. So not a harm, but rather a benefit. And secondly, they spun out projects that were so complex and had so many different pieces to them that there was no single uh, craft or single trade in place that could be said to be harmed because there would be no single uh, intervention previously that looked exactly like this version they were putting forward. So that was really uh, a legal requirement that promoted both the relationship of an endeavor to a much broader vision of what uh, political action needed to be taken for the common weal. So it took kind of what could have been small scale economic interventions and place them on this national and in fact often global stage of political intervention and encouraged people from many walks of life to reason about that. But it also encouraged them to relate uh, various different forms of knowledge in these very ambitious multi-plank projects. And the more ambitious they were, the greater their claims about how transformative this could be for the state and thus how beneficial for the common weal. So in that way, um, the project really encouraged certain intellectual practices of um, linking knowledge to politics all through kind of uh, forms of ingenious argument and persuasion, and also linking many diverse forms of knowledge. In an atmosphere of um, high risk, 
um, no certainty of success, that projectors also linked to this idea that projects not only were useful, but also could win the crown honor. And that's an important piece of um, the puzzle here about who a projector was, since projectors often were socially elite. The way that they went around about um, doing business, um, they wanted to distinguish that from the way that uh, more mercenary interests might be behaving. So for example, traditional merchants, they wanted to present themselves as kind of knights errant who were on an adventure on kind of a chivalric quest, which it literally is sometimes the way that they talk about their projects. And that means that they bring in these ideas of winning honor as well as profit, and they intermingled those two, which means that these kind of high-risk, high-reward ventures were the most noble kinds, you know, the kind of greater your competitor in a fight, the greater honor it wins you. And so that encouraged these um, very disruptive interventions, these very large-scale and ambitious interventions, rather than safer, lower-risk um, smaller scale interventions, such as, for example, an experienced merchant um, might pursue. People did not react to this at all well. So merchants, for example, reacted very negatively to the low probability of many projects, to the high risk of failure, to the high risk that these sometimes literal interlopers would be coming into their own sphere of trade and taking their trade away from them. Meanwhile, political thinkers uh, reacted quite negatively because the arguments about the public wheel was um, non-traditional. It was very money-focused. Um, it was not based on kind of the inculcation of ancient virtues. It was very trendy. It was related to what was known as the reason of state at the time, which was seen as Machiavellian, not in uh, a good way. Um, and it countered kind of notions of how uh, the common wheel was structured based upon traditional uh, positions in society where you pursued, as one preacher commented in an anti-project sermon, you pursued your role in, as a vocation in society in order to serve God and to do good to your fellow citizen and not just um, to pursue profit. Um, and that you had a vocation, that societies functioned in harmony when people knew what their task was and they stuck to their social role. These projectors were invading social roles and um, everyone who was being invaded, um, including fellow projectors, um, because they often interloped on each other's territories, didn't take kindly to it. Given some of the really quite stunning examples um, you describe of exactly these practices in the book and kind of in some senses, it almost sounded in a few instances like they were purposely trying to entangle as many possible things as they could. Um, would you mind kind of giving us a brief example of what one of these especially glory-seeking sorts of projects might have been trying to do? Um, sure. Uh, one of my favorites um, comes in a chapter about the submarine, uh, which Cornelis Drebbel invented around 1620 and displayed to spectacular effect before a very large public audience, including the king and his court. And almost immediately, uh, Prince Charles and King James uh, develop this uh, as part of a very large multi-plank project for transforming the balance of power in Asia, not to put a, too fine a point on it. So what Prince Charles wants to do is um, send the submarine to the Indian Ocean and use it to dig up shipwrecks from the bottom of the Indian Ocean floor, as well as dive for pearls as an everlasting source of treasure for the crown. At the same time, there would also be another ship um, of enough, uh, of large enough in size to serve as, um, to magnify the king's name, which would have all sorts of automata and other wonderful things on board. And Indian princes would be invited on board. Um, and due to their enjoyment of all the inventions there, this would be a, a kind of a diplomatic tool, kind of um, automata boat diplomacy 
to um, grease the wheels of all sorts of business and politics in the region. Um, at the very same time, King James would gift the Emperor Jahangir the art of cooling his palace uh, through, uh, it's not quite clear what kind of invention, either chemical air conditioning, which is something that Drebel was working on at the time, or possibly a kind of hydraulic engineering, kind of cooling channels. He wanted to send that as a diplomatic gift. And this was all going to be paired with several other interventions in the region, including piracy upon the Portuguese and the Chinese, um, restoring some trade that had been lost in the area, selling English woolens, uh, which had declined in their global sale and thus uh, reduced the honor of England. Um, and um, even more, there's even more to this project. So it was incredibly ambitious. Um, and throughout the project, it is um, these references to honor and the magnifying of the king's name come up again and again and again, um, tied to also um, these discovery of new sources of revenue in new environments, uh, not just in kind of the theater of Asia, but literally in the submarine environment. And one of the other... Um, kind of attributes of a project that we see here, in addition to this um, incredibly ambitious, multi-plank, global intervention, is the haste and the speed with which it is spun out. This is something that we see over and over again. You know, the submarines just invented in 1620, and by 1622, this is already being something that the king and the prince want to put into operation immediately. And they have a whole big fight with the East India Company over it, who asked them to delay for a few years. Um, and they say, no, they say, we cannot delay. If we delay, we'll lose this opportunity. And that's part of the story here is the sense that there are opportunities, there's occasions, and you have to strike while the iron is hot, that um, everyone else is on the lookout for advantage. And if you don't get in there first, you might lose your opportunity and you'll never be able to make it up again. So hastiness is one of the qualities that we see a lot in the um, intellectual practices of projecting. That's a fabulous example. Um, I admit when I asked you for an example, I was that was one of the ones I was hoping you might mention because it's just, I mean, so many different things are being put together. And as you said, it's being put together so quickly. So while we're on that, I'd love for you to maybe tell us a bit more about the significance of the pace of all of these projects and also the quantity of it, kind of how many of these are we talking about? What, what does that quantity sort of, how does that impact how this all goes? Yeah, the pace is just um, stupefying. Um, not only how quickly a project is um, proposed, but also sometimes how quickly it's put into action. Sometimes how quickly it's abandoned in favor of some other intervention when a new opportunity arises. And um, sometimes how quickly they fail. And then also um, when uh, how quickly pieces of older projects are taken up again and spun out again into new projects. So on every at every point, the pace is really astounding, and people do comment on the pace um, quite a lot. They talk about the hastiness with which people are acting, um, and uh, it's one of the big criticisms of the kind of practices of projects. What's interesting to me is that um, different trading companies seem to have had different reactions to this uh, to this paste and to these uh, nature of projects. So while the East India Company was reacting quite negatively to this particular one, the Virginia Company, which even included many members um, who were also centrally involved in the East India Company, um, had a really different kind of take on projects. And they put out, they sponsored many pamphlets and sermons encouraging investors uh, in them, 
in the Virginia company, which they themselves described as a project and lambasting England for having lost the opportunity that Christopher Columbus had presented to its, um, you know, perpetual disadvantage um, to um, the Spanish empire. So basically what they said is uh, there was this moment when we had an opportunity that was presented to us. This is kind of like uh, um, angel investors today. Um, someone comes forward with some unicorn. In this case, it's a Columbus. And at the time, English people were too hesitant to pursue it. And because they did not seize that opportunity, their enemies seized it. And now we have so much to make up for in terms of uh, American empire. So they use that example to kind of berate their countrymen, um, and to encourage investment in the Virginia company to say, we really need to have a culture shift. We need to encourage more haste uh, in pursuing projects. And there is one line which uh, recurs, which is, I think it goes, um, occasion is precious, but when it is occasion, that once the moment passes, um, you can't get it back again. And this goes to kind of political thinking uh, about the moment, about that ideal um, opportunity for political action that arises, um, that you have to act on it quite quickly. And so um, that is part of what, as a head of state, you are must have been tormented by. I do not envy them. This idea that there's these constant moments that are arising in um, the international stage. And I have to always be on the lookout for the next Columbus. You don't know this projector that's coming to me, granting me this opportunity. Is this something that existentially I cannot afford to turn down? Is this something that if I turn it down, they'll go to the next court and I will will be suffering for that decision for centuries? And so there's this sense that all of these, I, as, a, as a ruler, I might have the sense that there are all these people coming to me who are proffering these proposals, which they are framing as kind of the key to everlasting honor and profit. And I have to decide, is this the key? And it very well might be the key, but there's really no way to know that in advance. And besides that, so many of them are being offered to me at once. And so it must have been incredibly um, bewildering. And that's just, uh, it's bewildering. It was bewildering to me to research. And I'm sure that we only know about a small percentage of the projects that uh, were in fact afoot at the time and that people at the time had a sense of. So when people are making political decision-making, we have to imagine them as doing it from that vantage point, as seeing all of these high-risk, high-reward opportunities coming before them, um, a, a extreme paces on very large scales of ambition, um, very many of them at once, and having to make what basically split-second decisions about um, which to pursue and how to pursue them. So that, I agree, very challenging decision-making environment seems like it has all the ingredients for what we would now call corruption, right? Um, lots of big names, lots of high risk, but potential high reward, quick decisions, not a ton of information. To what extent, though, in what ways should we consider these to be corrupt environments and corrupt projects? Yeah, many different ways. So there are the forms of um, out and out corruption. And that is um, really one of the reasons why uh, the early Stuart period in particular has been underemphasized in the history of science, in my view, um, despite figures such as Francis Bacon being so such a prominent um, figure of the period. Um, and that's because it's been seen as a time of corruption. So whereas in Queen Elizabeth's court, uh, there were projects and projectors, not on the scale that there were um, in the early Stuart period, but there were, um, these were often, um, these were posed by previous economic historians as um, being a period of kind of constructive projects and contrasted with um, the early Stuart as being a period of corrupt projects, in part because 
Um, there was more investigation. There was more kind of uh, quality control, as it were, in Elizabeth's court um, versus in the early Stuart period. And projects were often um, uh, more realistic than what we see happening in the early Stuart period. And in part because some of the projects are intertwined with a great deal of kind of rent-seeking on behalf of um, elites who are trying to figure out how they can get a slice of the pie. Um, and so this is seen as, as that form of corruption where um, they're trying to spin out financial instruments, for example, um, discover forms of revenue, um, kind of um, sell honors, for example, um, is the, the inflation of honors is one thing, um, one form of early Stuart project. And so because in a kind of normative way, science is seen as not something that's developed via corruption, therefore, the early Stuart period of projecting could not have been as important for science as uh, a less corrupt age, the Elizabethan age, for example, when there is um, empiricism, there is fact-checking, there is kind of more practical on-the-ground quality control than some of these more ambitious castle-in-the-air types of investigations. Um, and there's a couple of ways I want to counter that view. One is that the castle-in-the-air type of investigation is its own type of intellectual practice. And it's an intellectual practice that, in fact, goes on to have a pretty important role to play in the development of scientific practice. And it is, in fact, in this context that the very term that would become central to 17th century English science um, experimental philosophy first appears and is developed. And so there's all forms of different forms of philosophy that are developed as part of this larger um, gamut of interloping intellectual practices that we see as part of projects. So for that reason, um, it is intimately tied to science. Secondly, corruption or interloping as a way of theft or appropriation can in and of itself be um, constructive, not positive, but constructive in the history of science in the sense that it is another way that forms of knowledge are brought together, that appropriation and theft itself is a way to mix forms of knowledge. And if there's one thing we know about the changes that took place in 17th century science, it's that forms of knowledge were being mixed um, in multifarious ways and at a scale that they had not um, previously been mixed. And so we look for what were the mechanisms through which such mixture could occur one model is something I alluded to earlier. It's known as um, trading zones in the history of science. And it's this idea that um, different people from different forms of society form collaborations in which they exchange or trade their knowledge. But another way to merge knowledge is theft. And so appropriation of knowledge, taking what's not yours, is something that we see quite a lot in projects of the time. That is a form of corruption, but it is also a form of corruption that has agency. It has agency not only um, for the people whose um, intellectual property were taken from them, but also um, to make new knowledge fusions and hybrids that we do see um, emerging at this time. Then there is um, another form of corruption, putting on a lens kind of more from the period. Very often people think of or call um, interlopers, uh, a common period metaphor is as some form of vermin. Uh, a caterpillar and polar of the common wheel is a, a nice 17th century term of abuse for a projector. And the idea being there that, um, that there are traditional forms of the common good. There are traditional ways to do business. There are traditional social roles. And that if we pursue our calling as um, we were born to do and as we ought to do, um, the commonweal um, will flourish and um, we will interact harmoniously in it. These projectors, which seem to, as one anti-projector pamphlet put it, tear everything down and put everything up, um, and have everything under their power, were seen as subverting these social roles and therefore as being something that was kind of sucking the vital juice out of the body politic. And in that sense, they were termed uh, a parasite. So literally a canker 
or corruption or disease in the body politic. Um, that would be an early modern sense of the way in which they were corrupt many ways in which they were corrupt then um, with some very entertaining vocabulary. I think some people are going to go around maybe um, reviving old insults perhaps. Miranda, are you there? Um, Or maybe that's kind of taking things a step too far, which is in a lot of senses, one of the one of these intellectual <laughs> habits that interlopers were definitely doing and was definitely making people mad at them. Um, and you've talked through kind of some of them so far and given us some examples, but I wonder if we can pause for a moment on the particular practice of extrapolating um, and what role that sort of purposely played, um, what were projectors kind of using it for? Um, and how it relates to this bigger idea of transgressing assumed boundaries? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And there are many ways um, that projectors were extrapolating. Um, They were extrapolating from um, different parts of the world. So um, for an invention to be new, it didn't need to be new to England. It uh, didn't need to be new in the world. It just needed to be new to England. And in fact, it was considered a perk if you stole it from somewhere else. And so that's a form of extrapolation is to say, this is something that's pursued in another land. I will now um, extrapolate from that scenario to here and also argue that if it worked there, it will also work here. And so there are these arguments for the probability of the success of a project. And people often discuss projects in terms of probability and of hope. Um, which are really important categories, um, probability more than hope, in the history of um, scientific thought in the 17th century and some of the transformations of it, so that what you're seeking is probability. So projects are probabilistic. And um, there was an intellectual practice of extrapolating from one scenario to another to argue for why it is more likely that this uh, particular project would work out. And that's a really important um, intellectual habit, um, not only to for a projector to get the investors and to get the royal protection that they want for their project, but also in terms of these new forms of hybrid Uh, um, forms of science such as experimental philosophy that develops, we see a lot of extrapolation. So a lot of, I think your listeners will know, um, work such as uh, that of William Ashworth uh, and other people who've talked about pre-modern thinking about nature as made up of kind of emblems and analogies. So for example, if a plant's leaf is shaped like a liver, it can be used, hepaticum, it can be used to treat uh, a liver disease, a liverwort, that kind of plant. Um, So uh, they're kind of being analogies moving from one thing to another in order to explain how the world functions. That kind of analogy has kind of a, a real relationship, supposedly, that there is really some intrinsic ontological relationship between the plants and um, the human organ. Extrapolation is a pretty different intellectual practice where you're not arguing that there is any kind of Um, necessary relationship between one situation or the other. It's just a likely, likely the case that if I move from this situation or this phenomenon, I can extrapolate something else from it. And so it's a form of probabilistic reasoning. And it's one of the main forms of reasoning that we find in the text of projects. Um, If this works here, it will work there. If this particular chemical change, for example, works in this scenario, I can apply that to that scenario. Um, And it is also an intellectual practice that we do see playing a very big role um, in experimental philosophy in very kind of um, interconnected ways. I'll give you a pretty extreme example of this, of extrapolation, one of the kind of Uh, We might think of crazier projects of the period, but we could also reframe that and just think of it as more ambitious and more kind of infused with uh, natural philosophy. And I'm thinking about the project for developing a colonial uh, silk industry, which is a project that was pursued for centuries. It's one of the incredible things that a lot of these projects were pursued over and over and over again, even though they continually failed. And so that's a kind of historical question in its own right is, 
why do people continue to pursue the same projects with complete knowledge of previous failures? So um, there's many answers to that question, and I delve into them in this book. But one of the reasons why people were pursuing silk so much is because um, other people were able to do it. So you have that form of extrapolation. So silk, obviously, sericulture, source of major wealth and prestige in China, um, also transplanted to European nations, such as France, which succeeded in doing it. So King James argues, if Henry IV succeeded in transplanting silk to France, there's no reason why the English people, who are no less industrious and skilled than the French, and um, should be able to pursue it. And since the honor of a nation lies in the industry and activeness of its people, it's beholden upon a monarch as a principal part of his sovereignty, he says, to kind of advance the sciences and advance industries um, among his people. And so he really, um, as a prime political objective, wants to pursue sericulture both in England as well as in um, overseas empire. He's extrapolating. In France, they do it. We can do it. That's kind of the most basic level of extrapolation, but there's some more extreme levels of, of extrapolation in this project. First off, um, there is a native uh, Virginian mulberry tree and there is a native Virginian silk moth. It's a really um, incredibly huge and dramatic silk moth. And so... Um, People thought it was actually providential <laughs> that these were both located in Virginia and therefore um, it's a further sign of the likelihood of success for this particular project. However, neither was uh, of the right species. The native Virginian silk uh, mulberry tree is not the type of mulberry tree that the domesticated Chinese silkworm likes to feed upon, and the native Virginian silk moth does not produce silk that can be reeled into thread. Not a problem, thought some of the projectors of the period. We can transmute them. We can transform them. So the Virginia company literally was printing pamphlets to send to Virginia to be put into practice there by, they specified, um, both men and women, and um, what they wanted to be done was people to um, engage in some pretty out there experiments that um, in gardening, uh, which might make it possible to produce sericulture in Virginia. And one of the pamphleteers, uh, John Farrar, worked for a member of the Virginia company who had a pretty extraordinary, pretty famous garden in Chelsea outside London, which was kind of a showcase of what might be possible uh, through gardening abilities. Uh, this was a real wonderful period in the history of English gardening. Uh, lots of new species, obviously, but also lots of new inventions and garden experiments and transforming everything about a plant from its size and its shape and its smell and its taste. Uh, lots of experiments and wondrous plants that seem to have sympathetic abilities or to follow the motion of the moon um, or the sun. So uh, Farrar, who's never been to Virginia, is offering advice to these people who are in pretty dire straits there um, about some rather out there gardening experiments they should try um, based more on his experience of some um, wonderful gardeners in uh, the London area. And this is his advice. Um, this is based on kind of ancient Greek botanical theory, but which is taken much further in this context of fairly magical gardening practices of early Stuart London. Um, the advice is that they should attempt to transmute the native Virginian mulberry and the native Virginian silkworm into the Chinese one in order to produce silk in Virginia and therefore uh, establish a sericulture industry. And here's how they're going to be able to do that. Just as animals can be tamed um, by handling alone, um, they can be domesticated that way. So too, according to some ancient sources on plants, plants too can be tamed 
um, by handling alone um, via transplantation. And so um, this propagandist for the Virginia company advises colonists that they should transplant and retransplant the native Virginian mulberry tree. Um, and that by doing that, they can transform a wild and in his view, worthless plant into something that is domesticated like the Chinese species and of value. And that in general, transplantation works this wonderful effect to um, mitigate wildness and transformed what he considers the savage into the civilized. So this is a theory of transplantation that he is suggesting for actual plants and um, therefore, the silkworms that feed upon them. But you can only imagine what kinds of um, implications it had for colonial uprooting of um, people and knowledge, as well as plant and animal life um, more generally. And this is a form of reasoning by extrapolation. He, he admits he does not know how this works, um, but that um, extrapolating from domesticating animals plants too should be able to be transformed by a transplantation. He repeats this advice decades later in the 1650s. He's again in a position to promote um, colonization in Virginia and sericulture, which is one of his most beloved projects in particular. He repeats this advice and he casts it as part of what he calls um, garden philosophy. And this is one of the many hybrid forms of philosophy that people are developing in the context of projects at the time. And not only does he develop this incredible idea about the power of transplantation and how it could furnish a whole new form of knowledge, such as garden philosophy, he also frames it um, as a form of knowledge that should be pursued even though it's uncertain. So once again, this idea that we can't afford not to undertake it because what you serve to gain from it, and this is kind of a risk-benefit analysis, is so much greater than what you would lose by um, just trying it, he claims. And in particular, he casts his advice about um, pursuing sericulture as a hint and I just love the genre of hints. Hints are um, a new genre in the 1620s. Uh, they emerge in English and become really popular in the 1640s. And hints are kind of an extrapolation. So a hint is, I have a little hint of something over here. I'm going to hand it over to you or pass it over to you. Um, give you this hint. It kind of comes from the word to hunt or get a handhold on something. Um, so that you can follow it up. Uh, you may not, you may not uh, succeed. It may not, in fact, result in success. It's not certain by any means, which is why it's not a clue that will lead you certainly somewhere, but rather it's a kind of extrapolation. It's a hint from this kind of uh, intimation that something might be the case to that situation. And hints are hugely powerful because they allow people to make suggestions of kind of immense um, promise. People would refer in the period to kind of pregnant hints. Um, they're kind of pregnant with potential and possibility, but they have very little accountability. So um, if it doesn't work out, they could say, ha, huh, I never promised you it would work. And maybe you just didn't have what it take to follow up a hint or, you know, well, it, it was worth a try because the, the, the promises, uh, what it promised was so great. And hence, um, go on to have a, a really big role to play in kind of those scientific practices of extrapolation. I was talking about early experimental philosophers um, through the interregnum period and into the restoration, just litter their works with hints. They have a hint of this, they're offering a hint of that. There are dozens of hints uh, in works of experimental philosophy. So it's a really like projects, but even more so than projects, a kind of underexplored genre, I think. So you've already prefaced the idea of kind of this hints continuing, this idea continuing. Obviously, what we've been talking about throughout, there are lots of connections to our present day. So as a penultimate question, I'm wondering if you can speak maybe a little bit more to that particularly. What legacies has this history of interloping left for us? Uh, many. <laughs> 
Um, so there are very specific ones in terms of intellectual practices um, and entanglements of science, technology, commerce, politics, and colonialism. And I think that the story that it tells about how those entangle are pretty different from some of the um, state-of-the-art accounts that are uh, more about um, disciplining and kind of efficient bureaucracies um, that kind of impose science um, upon the world. This is a a pretty different metaphor um, of these kind of opportunists that are roaming through the world who valorize global knowledge in the sense that they see profit to be made from it, um, don't necessarily, don't, of course, um, value um, the sovereignty of the people who developed that knowledge and who um, work to kind of extract that knowledge and develop it into these, um, to these projects. And so that is a legacy that remains with us in terms of um, projects, in terms of development, um, the way that science and technology is um, deployed globally, uh, imperially and colonially, as well as the way that scientific knowledge um, is developed out of global knowledge um, through this particular dynamic of interloping. So it plays that um, epistemic role in the development of science and technology, which is also a highly political um, role. And it also plays a role in a lot of the attitudes that we have about um, disruption and innovation and the promise of science and technology and the role of that promise within the commonweal. Because a lot of the rhetoric uh, that projectors um, include in their projects will seem really familiar to people today who might read promises stemming from um, Silicon Valley or who are familiar with all sorts of moonshot scientific projects um, from our um, past century. And um, in particular, as uh, historians and humanists, uh, we are experiencing the legacy of a kind of denigration of the ability and promise of our type of knowledge, um, which uh, these projectors are um, casting as not able to hint at the future, not be as disruptive um, in the same way as the forms of knowledge that they are engaging in projects. Um, and even though in science and technology today, there are many, many, many forms of basic science research that in fact are quite far from any kind of real world, quote unquote, deployments, um, what that legacy has been in terms of um, these imaginaries of promise and power and honor that can be won is that that kind of research um, is seen as gesturing towards future fulfillment, as offering kind of a promissory note um, to what it will transform in the future. At the same time that it has that carrot of future promise, there's also that stick, like um, in the case of Columbus's turned down proffer, that if we don't pursue this research, um, other people will, and existentially, we need it as a civilization. So both the carrot and the stick um, of projecting that this is something that must be done, um, that there is a uh, there will be political consequences if it's not done, um, and that um, it is something that operates on a kind of civilizational plane um, is something that, uh, we can see appearing in these, in these arguments about projects and about which a large scale, um, story could be told, um, reaching down through the centuries, obviously with lots of changes along the way, but there are relationships. Very much so. Um, and helpfully, I think you've given us a great sense of where a lot of those are. And of course, there's many more details in the book for listeners who have been intrigued and want to know about 
I mean, there's so many things I could mention. The miniature submarines kind of springs to mind as a particular teaser. Um, But while listeners are investigating these links, um, thinking more about what was happening in the past, I'm wondering if you could finish us off with a little comment about your future, particularly. Um, The book is just out. Is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to share with the audience? Sure. Um, I have another book that will be coming out. Uh, It's called Curating the Enlightenment, Johann Daniel Mayor and the Experimental Century. And it's about the history of research and the making of research disciplines. Um, And basically what I'm trying to do there is look at the second half of the 17th century and say, so if I'm an academic, and I'm looking at all of these things that are coming from basically outside the academy, disrupting knowledge, overthrowing concepts of what science were, undisciplining it. Um, how do I react to that? And how do I try to take some features of that, um, such as the dynamism and the advancement, and work that back into an academic structure? And so I'm looking at these um, ways that knowledge was rearranged to be mobile um, in the formation of new disciplines and new concepts of the disciplines in the academy in the later 17th century. And I'm arguing that this is kind of where we see our research disciplines being formed, but that that they remained incoherent, that they brought in these kinds of um, unstoppable juggernauts of changing knowledge, such as experimental philosophy, and they sought to put them into a disciplinary framework, but there are some internal um, incoherences between the very idea of discipline and the very idea of continuing evolving knowledge. And that uh, that is another legacy um, that we as research scholars um, live with today, that we um, experience a lot of churn in our academic lives because on the one hand, we need to transmit our disciplines and we have our teaching selves uh, and we try to transmit authoritative knowledge. On the other hand, we are supposed to be producing new knowledge and um, innovation and research and overturning the tables. Uh, and so there is this constant tug of war between um, transmitting the discipline and advancing learning. Well, on that very fascinating and thought-provoking note um, and another book to look out for, of course, listeners can in the meantime read the book we've been discussing titled The Interlopers, Early Stuart Projects and the Undisciplining of Knowledge, just published by Johns Hopkins Press. Vera, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you for the wonderful questions. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) 